the beginning and now the sound dropped off oh thank you for the heads up there did you unplug anything is that any better yes oh okay great okay please let me know again if there's a problem Whoop. not good again wow wow okay hold on what if i move this closer is that better yes far away is that is that perfect or not perfect not perfect. Let me try it. Still a, a, a little bit low. I can hear Eileen, you know, clearly. How's this one? Better. This one better. Better. Are we perfect? Better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> never I perfect, but I mean. Thank you. <laughs> I can hear I can hear everyone else much better than I can hear Shmuley. Okay. Yep. Is that how about now? Good. That's all better. Okay. Good. Yeah. There these, we go. These things are junk. You buy these headsets. For, you know, I get, uh, you know, they get the good Amazon reviews, but I don't know why they don't work for me. Okay. So <laughs> here's your last option. I'm not very proud of the Jews and feel we're not where we should be. 
Okay, so take take 20 seconds and cast your vote. I know these are hard to pick just one sometimes, but um, let's see what we got. Give it another 10 seconds. I know this is complex and we'll take we'll take a thought or two on this after we have the results. Okay, AJ, do we have the results? <laughs> yeah, let's end the poll. Okay, here we go. Oh, here we go. The Jews are the greatest, 22%. I don't know if the Jews are the greatest, but we're quite special, 56%. Jews are no better or worse than anyone else, 11%. And I'm not very proud of the Jews and feel we're not where we should be, 11%. Okay, anyone want to explain why they voted how they did? Anyone want to share? I, I just feel like, you know, there's good Jews, there's bad Jews. I mean... For every Bernie Madoff, there's a Shmuley Yankowitz. So, uh... <laughs> well, if I could be the opposite of Madoff, you know, if it says that at my funeral, this guy was the opposite of Madoff. You know, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. You know, well, I, me I meant it as two real extremes, but you know, I, never, you. We, nice. we have good, we have bad, and that's throughout history. Yeah. You know, Jews yeah, were given yeah. the chance, and we rebelled, and we didn't do what we should. And you look at kings, and you want to, mm -hmm. you know, hide your head, but we have the potential to be great, but yeah, sometimes think, we just don't make it. I think okay, the great. fact that we're embarrassed by Bernie Madoff speaks well for us. Okay, good point, Francine. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yes, hi. Cheryl. Hi. Um, I was the one that said I'm not very proud right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think part of it is because of the Abba Dubaya story, Abba Budaya story mm -hmm. yesterday. Yeah. That was one yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, historic, you know, just just what's happened, the, the Jews, uh, how the Jews have behaved. Um, I mean, yeah, we do great things. But right now, it's I, I would say just right now, I'm not very proud. And I feel that we're not great. where we should be. Great, great. One more person. Um, I would gonna... say um, that there's a danger in thinking you're too special. So I mm -hmm. think that um, the humility component of saying, um, you know, we are no more special than anyone else is important mm -hmm. to remember because I think everybody thinks that they're special in whatever they believe. Mm -hmm. So we have, right. many, we have many special, we have many important and I think amazing tools for self-examination and for tikkun olam. And, um, but I don't think we should think that we are the only people with Great. Us. Great. If you have more thoughts, put them in the chat over there, anyone who didn't speak yet. Um, and I think this is a, it's a fascinating question. How do we educate our children or our grandchildren to both be proud to be a Jew, that that's something special and unique, but also to be humble and respectful and tolerant and potentially even pluralistic? And, um, and how do we balance also, you know, celebrating the great things coming out of our community while also holding accountable and being embarrassed by the parts that, that are not positive? And, um, and also, some of us like to think more about Judaism than Jews. Um, do the Jews represent Judaism, or is Judaism something beyond peoplehood? Many people think that religion is lived through peoplehood, and Judaism is only as good as Jews live it in mass. Um, and others think that the institution of religion and the thought that is eternal, and, or at least millennia old, transcends peoplehood. So... Um, Lots to think about there, lots to think about. So friends, let's go forward. Thank you for opening up. As in the previous malachot on the theme, 
we are still concentrated on hides in this malacha of memachik, memachik, the 30th malacha, smoothing or scraping. The hides in the mishkan needed to be scraped to remove any hair and to be smoothed out. Consequently, activities to accomplish a smoothing of any kind fall within the scope of this malacha. A modern example of such an activity would be sanding. Today, many people talk about using a bar of soap or creams or ointments or toothpaste uh, as it relates to the malacha. As is typical, it doesn't apply to actions taken in regards to food or eating. So why is it we want things to be smooth? To be smooth. Smooth objects are pleasant to touch. And touching is such a profound human sense. While it would seem that touching would be a major locus for mitzvot observance, since we interact with objects daily, a good portion of the mitzvot are connected to the sense of hearing. What are examples of mitzvot with hearing? Think about prayer or think about listening to the Torah reading. That, consider that the most central Jewish prayer is called hear, shema. Some mitzvot have to do with the sense of sight. Think about the mitzvah to make an etrog beautiful. Regarding sight, Isaiah prophesied, your eyes will see your master. Some have to do with the sense of smell. Think about smelling the spices at Havdalah. The human spiritual potential regarding smell is made clear right at the beginning of the Torah. God breathed into his nostrils the soul of life, right? Life or the soul is, is, has to do with, with the nose and the sense of smell. And the rabbis taught that smell was maintained as a particularly pure and spiritual sense because it was the only one that didn't benefit from the hate in the Gan Eden, from the sin in the Garden of Eden. Some mitzvot deal totally with the sense of taste, such as eating matzah on Pesach, for example. But what meets vote are involved in the sense of touch? Well, maybe none, but perhaps all meets vote relate in some way to the sense of touch, because in order to perform every mitzvah, we must appreciate the smooth and seamless relationship between our intention to perform that mitzvah and the real world that we must inhabit in order to perform any mitzvah. Something that is a minhag, wearing tefillin or tzitzit, in tefillin, we touch and kiss, or think about kissing the mezuzah. These are only customs, not mitzvot. But it is interesting that this sense of touch, um, in many ways, is um, <laughs> yes. And Cheryl reminds us of Peru or Vu to be fruitful and multiply. Very much has to do with with touch. Um, so yes, as when it comes to sexual relations, there's most certainly touch involved. But if you were in our class on marital intimacy yesterday with Noam Tzion, he talked about how in some Hasidic circles, um, um, the <laughs> wearing tzitzit or wearing other garments uh, to reduce touch, um, which is might be in you know an anathema or counterintuitive to us in uh, the West or liberal circles. Consider how the Havdalah service, the weekly transition from Shabbat places emphasis on reawakening our senses to serve God. Havdalah inspires us to be spiritually actualized in this physical world. The blessings progress from the most physical to the most sublime. First, we start with the sense of taste, with the blessing over wine, requiring the wine to touch the mouth. The second blessing on the spices regarding the sense of smell doesn't necessitate physical touch, only proximity. 
The third blessing over the sight of the light is even more subtle and can be experienced from a distance. Lastly, the fourth blessing of Hamavdil ben Kodesh is about the intellectual capacity of discernment. The most abstract of all, which does not seem to involve touch at all, although we can only discern the world and its meaning if we are in touch with it. This comes, by the way, this explanation comes from the Kaf Chaim, from the Rashbats. One of the easy ways, if you forget the order of Havdalah in the moment, is you think about going up the face, right? You drink with the mouth, then you smell with the nose, and then you see the light with the eyes, right? But the Rashbats here explains it's also about the physical touch versus the sublime, right? The first bracha on, on, on Borei Pri Hagafen is something that is tasted. It's physically encountered. Then the smell, you don't need to touch the spices. You just bring it close to your nose and you can smell in a close proximity. And then the light, you, even if the candle was across the room, you experience the light from a distance. And then the fourth bracha of Hamavdu ben Kodeshvachol, um, that of intellectual discernment. And so we, as we make Havdalah moving from the from the spiritual Shabbat to the physical world of the other days, we also move from the spiritual and um, to the um, and the more sublime to the more to the more physical, as part of that Havdalah experience. That the Rashbats explains. But just because touch is so physical, is it necessarily superficial? Deepak Chopra. You don't normally think you're going to go from the Rashbats to Deepak Chopra right? <laughs> but Deepak Chopra writes, more than anything, love is a deep sense of spiritual connection, of being touched, moved, and inspired to heights beyond our normal limits. It is a connection with a deep fundamental truth that runs through all of life and connects us together. Love makes the mundane sacred so that it is cared for and protected. When we lose our sense of connection with all life, we have lost the sacred and we no longer care for and protect that which nourishes us. What, what does it mean when we say, I, oh, I'm so touched by that. I'm so touched by what you've said. I mean, literally, it means that I, I'm having a physical, physiological, physiological, sensational experience, a sensory experience with what's happened. I'm so touched by that right? It's not just that, oh, that's, thank you very much. That's very nice. Or that was very moving intellectually. I'm touched by what you've done, meaning I'm physically experiencing uh, on a hormonal, on a sensory level. I'm very touched by that. And the power of love to be touched, to be moved on a deep level. The late poet Amos Az, you know, it's always weird to say late when someone's passed away. So recently, Amos Az lived from um, 1939 to 2018, so we passed just uh, about two years ago. Waiting for the next slide. Um, wrote a touching poem about what it means to touch and be touched, to change and be changed. How many of you ever heard him speak in, in person or, or ever heard him? He's, uh, okay, or read one of his books. Okay, the land of Israel is not a museum of God. No place is a museum of God. No person and no inanimate object is a thing of worship. Wow. It is permissible to both touch and change these things on the condition that you yourself are prepared to be touched and changed. Wow. The condition is love. I know it is impossible to educate to love. You cannot educate someone to love the land, nor can you educate someone to love the scenery 
with love, you can infect someone else. Sometimes love can be awakened, sometimes, but not with a strong hand, not with an outstretched arm, and not with burning anger. There he's drawing on Exodus, of course. Rather, through an approach of mutuality, you come to a place, a hill, the desert, a spring, a house. You change it and make your mark upon it, but it also to be open and give it to the opportunity to leave its mark on you. To leave its mark on you. And so here he's talking about that to be taught, to touch, you need to be willing to be touched. To love, you need to be willing to be loved. And here he's dealing with the land, but something more profound as well about what it means to change someone and be willing to be changed, what it means to teach someone and be willing to be taught, what it means to open up experiences of mutuality. You know, our Arizona Jews for Justice fellows are going to, um, to, to encounter the homeless on Thursday with our team leader, Eddie, our great team leader, Eddie Chavez Calderon. And, um, and what does it mean? We don't go there to reach out an arm, to help, to save. We go there in mutuality. Yes, we have different things to offer, right? But we go there with respect. We go there in a sense to change, but be changed, to help and be helped, not arriving. People know if you're arriving to be a savior, if you're arriving to be a healer, or if you realize the mutuality, the respect that comes with an encounter and brings such a humility to that space. It's going to be a short sharing today, so we're almost through already. But um, but here's a, here's our next poem from Ravindra Kumar Karnani, who is a contemporary Indian poet. Ravindra Kumar Karnani, translating a moving old Hindu poem, shares how we long to be physically touched by God, but know not what that would feel like. She writes, the child whispered. God, speak to me. And a meadow lark sang. The child did not hear. So the child yelled, God, speak to me. And the thunder rolled across the sky, but the child did not listen. The child looked around and said, God, let me see you. And a star shone brightly, but the child did not notice. And the child shouted, God, show me a miracle. And a life was born, but the child did not know. Slide. So the child cried out in despair, touch me, God, and let me know you are here. Whereupon God reached down and touched the child, but the child brushed the butterfly away and walked away unknowingly. Would we ever know if we were touched by God? Heinz Kohut, the developer of the field of self-psychology wrote, the inner world cannot be observed with the aid of our sensory organs. Our thoughts, wishes, feelings, and fantasies cannot be seen, smell, heard, or touched. They have no existence in physical space. 
and yet they are real. And we can observe them as they occur in time. Through introspection in ourselves and through empathy, i.e. vicarious introspection in others. Friends, we are physical beings gifted with powerful senses, but we also transcend our physicality. To understand ourselves and others, we must go beyond the sensory level. The malacha of memachik reminds us of how much we value the physical experience of touch and smooth touch in particular. And yet we are reminded that the physical senses can open the soul. And at the same time, we recognize that the most sublime dimensions of human experience are indeed not sensory at all. Okay, let's move to gallery view. Okay, shalom friends. Okay, so let's open up the floor. That was a shorter one today. I'd love to hear from you. If, if I can address physical touch, because I don't know if you've been locked down there. We, we're, lock, we're on another lockdown. But really, since March, um, it's been separated at least six feet from other people, wear a mask, etc. So, I, and, and I just live with a cat. So I can't tell you how much I miss a hug, you know? It's just, um, even when we were allowed to see other people and like meet in a coffee shop outdoors, which ended in October. Um, we, um, you know, I still couldn't hug my friends. And a lot of my friends who have grandchildren just say that the worst thing is not being able to see their grandchildren, especially hug their grandchildren. So I think physical touch is a very, very human need. And, and it elicits like, you know, in some cases love, but also a sense of security that, um, you just don't get otherwise. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And so, um, you know, let's let's think about that that for, uh, together for a minute before we move on, because I think you're absolutely right. And um, to take the most drastic case, um, when you are visiting someone who is sick in the hospital, I mean, obviously pre or post COVID, uh, if there ever is a post COVID, I guess we sort of mean, you know, post this stage of COVID. Um, we know that what you want to do in general um, is touch the person. People who um, are in hospital beds, not to mention hospice, long for touch. You want to hold a hand. You want to, um, if the relationship is right, you know, rub someone's forehead. Um, you know, um, in fact, in Hilchot Bikur Cholim, in the Jewish traditions around visiting the sick, um, you want to physically help them, whether it means sweep the room or rub their feet or whatever the case is, that the power of touch and when someone is in a vulnerable space, so in like a hospital, is, is very, very important. Um, but even outside of the hospital, what Lauren is saying there, our physical longing for touch and the need that gives us and a sense of security. So why do you think that is? If you were playing God for a moment, designing the humanity why would it be that we would design human beings to need touch? Why would it be that our, our psychological sense of security 
is so connected with being held and holding. I, I don't think it's just human beings, though. When you look uh, at yes, animals, yes, yes. W- when you look at animals, I mean, they just, uh, you know, it's the same thing. They, the yes. animals want to be touched. They want to touch each other. Yes. But um, I also yes. think, uh, I, I think I don't, I don't know anything more about it than the title of the program, the, the television show called Touched by an Angel. And oh, it, which, I loved which that kind, when I was a kid. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I, I, I really don't know what it's about, but it always evoked kind of a very um, Christian image yes. to me, actually. Yes. Uh, that, that I mean, it, reminiscent of the poem you just read about the child who didn't, you know, who, who didn't recognize when, when God was really touching him, like physiologically or, you know, spiritually or whatever. So I, I just wanted to comment on those couple things. Thank you so much for that. And, and uh, you know, just two things to pick up on there. What, by the way, what was the name of that, um, of that famous actor in that show? Touched I don't. Name. Anybody remember? There, there's another one now starring Ted Danson about, you know, uh, the, the, something about he's in heaven. You know, it's like he's, you know, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of, but I don't remember yeah. who was in that show. Okay, so um, just looking up, it said starring Roma Downey, Della Reese, John Dye, Valerie Bertinelli. That doesn't ring a bell for me totally. In any case, okay. I remember so clearly as a child watching that show, and it definitely had Christian overtones. Um, but I remember this uh, this fellow, it would, it would start or end with him walking into the sunset. In any case, um, so thank you for that. And um you're right. It's not just humans, Cheryl. It's 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 all of um, it's all of anim- the animal kingdom. And um, just looking at my son, I uh, my two year old, he um, always always wants the nurse. He all all of his sense of security and his like emotional mm-hmm. stability. Not all of it, but you know, you get what I mean. So much of his so his his sense of stability and emotional uh, security is about nursing. And when I'm mm-hmm. home with him and my wife is not. He is um, always asking to nurse and it's just, it's, it's unbelievably powerful. I mean, he doesn't need the milk, you know, I mean, he's two and a half years old, but he needs the warmth. He needs the connection. Right. He needs yeah. the breast on his cheek. Um, mm-hmm. And it is just so incredibly powerful. And then we think we transcend that. Okay. I'm not two anymore. I don't need to nurse, you know, but we actually, maybe we don't transcend that, that need for fi- that physical closeness is so powerful. Um, so thank you. Yes. I wanted to add that there have been studies of children who were in homes and actually lost the will to live because they were not touched. Mm. It's that important for a child's growth to Mm -hmm. have the touch and the security that the touch evokes. Yes. 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 Thank you for that. And, um, you know, it, it touch is, you know, this is something that I've always, I've, I've tried to navigate over the years because um, I grew up in a world where everyone touched each other a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went into the Haredi world in my own experience, into the ultra-Orthodox world, which had a strict Shomer Nagia idea where men touch each other a lot. You know, a very huggy culture, a very, uh, a very touchy culture, and yet um, you don't touch any women, right? Um, uh, even even a man touching his wife uh, in you know a, a lot for a lot of times, um, 
And then that I bridged into this world of what we moved into a Me Too world. And thank God in the Me Too movement, we realized that a lot of men in the workplace used touch in ways they found innocent, but women found to be either abusive at worst, um, uh, at slightly worst, offensive, at slightly worse, uh, slightly less worse, excuse me, um, crossing a boundary, at slightly less worse, a power dynamic, and in other cases, just slightly awkward. Now, many women I know had no problem if someone they worked with put a hand on a shoulder, gave them a hug in the workplace, you know, whatever the case is. I mean, things that we would generally consider to be, you know, uh, in, that seem to be innocent and others who feel like any touch crosses a boundary. And so I know there's a lot of other things to talk about, but I do want to raise a question around this, around how do we think about touch um, um, in our community and in the workplace in ways that are both uh, affectionate and respectful and that might cross uh, that might cross boundaries. I have erred on the heavily sensitive side on this, um, which is to say in a public gathering, there's a banquet dinner and the norm is to give a hug. Okay, you give a hug, you know, but when it comes to, um, you know, a meeting or something like that to err on a more cautious side, but I'm curious to hear from others. What's your experience with touch and boundaries? If I could say something again, yeah, just please. from my work life, somehow you know if the guy's being creepy or not. Uh -huh. I mean, it, <laughs> no, seriously, I don't know if the other women will yeah. agree with me. I mean, I had one boss who was really <clears throat> creepy. And just even the way he would touch my shoulder or he'd try and rub my neck, it was creepy. Whereas, you know, I had other guys who were colleagues who was sometimes, you know, oh my God, like I'm having such a stressful day and they'd rub my neck and it was, there was nothing sexual, nothing creepy. It's just, it's the intent. But so it, it's really hard because I don't want to go too far where you, you can't hug a colleague like, you know, oh, my wife just had a baby. Mazel tov, you want to give them a big hug. Uh -huh. But at the same time, you don't want some creepy guy touching you and they used to feel that they had the right to they probably still do yeah but and the hard part is um I, I suspect i suspect that those who you would identify as creepy guys have would not self-identify as creepy guys and so um how do you kind You're of right. have norms how do you have norms you know um around these, these kinds of things it's difficult it's real i guess it's also the relationship you have i mean with my colleagues uh -huh. i was pretty friendly with the boss, you know, he was only the boss. I only saw him um, when he came in, went out. It was just, I don't know. Do, can other ladies comment or you found that? I think that um, right now I'm re uh, reading the book Cast. I don't know if anybody has read it. It's an unbelievable, captivating book about um, racism and casteism. But um, I, I go with the power you know, that often, you know, maybe because I'm in that mode right now with yep, this yep. book is right. that uh, a lot of times touching is um, a play for power. As Lauren said, you can, you know, sometimes you, you have to figure out when, when the person, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, it's being, you know, the, the touching that might go on at a workplace between the, someone who was in the dominant cast, this is the, the, the language they use versus the subordinate cast, you know, it's a, it's a power play, you know, I have the right, 
you know, I, I have every right to touch you. So then, then it becomes yeah, something right. that, you know, a taboo. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, you, you know, it's very interesting. So, you know, if you look at the, I think what would be the typical generationally, the typical American white man in their seventies, I say white, just cause I don't, I, I don't know the, the, the culture of people of color in the same way uh, of people of, of white men in their seventies in America, it would be a Joe Biden type. Now, Biden, as you know, over the last decade or a, a, last, a few, <laughs> yeah. few years, some people loved it. This is a warm teddy bear. And some people mm-hmm. are like, this guy's creepy. He's hugging everyone. He's, yeah. he's touching them. And, and, and I wonder, like, how have you experienced that Joe Biden phenomenon of like uh, a white man in their 70s and how he how he touches? Um, I would say I think I used to work a lot with people quite a bit younger than myself. And I think there's so much, gen- and uh, my youngest is trans. And I think that it's um, really different generationally, I find. And then of course, it's all about being mindful. I think, I didn't realize that there's a privilege with whiteness until really the last few years. And I think as an older white woman, I feel entitled to touch almost anybody I think I want uh, because women aren't scary. And, and I had to realize lots of my, youngest friends they don't want to be touched I mean they've had bad experiences with touching so I and I personally had you know bad experiences as a child with being touched in an unwanted way and I I um, think that we just all have to be kind of mindful about reading the person around us and what they want and having a sort of a awareness of like is it okay if I hug you you know you know to kind of uh-huh. but I, I look at Biden and don't see any predatory um, no, because no, I do think that I agree people who felt that it was yeah. predatory at different points. And I do think you can read that and you know that and that intention is in the eyes yeah. of the movement or something you know about the person. But yeah. I do think um, it's very generational. And we were I was with a group of people once my husband and I we were in some room and with the, um, my do- youngest friends and some woman all of a sudden said to him, don't you touch me. And we all looked at Mickey doesn't touch anybody. He never, I mean, he's just not a toucher. And I'm like, whoa, whatever she perceived happened was it really freaked us out because Uh it was totally whatever was random in a full, in a room full of people. But her sensitivity was really high because she's obviously been traumatized by touch. And, and, you know, um, the other person who's had really interesting things to say about this is um, Mm -hmm. I think Simone Biles. Um, has talked a lot about it from her experience in gymnastics, but everyone wants to hug her and yeah. how triggering uh, that can be mm-hmm. and how she really mm-hmm. has to have a boundary and kind of have to say to people, both I can't talk about your trauma with you because it triggers me and I can't always just be touched all the time. You yeah. know what I mean? It's interesting. Very interesting. Yes. So the trauma factor is really big in the power of touch. You know, something else I learned, there was a man I used to hug um, and uh, the first two times I hugged him, he was stiff like a rock. And I was like, oh, clearly this guy doesn't want to be hugged. And then, the, uh, and then the third time I hugged him, he actually responded to it. And, I, and, and at first I was like, oh, this guy doesn't want to be hugged. And then I realized like, no, this might have been, and I, and I didn't know how to read it. This might actually be a person who didn't know how to hug and wasn't used to being hugged and then kind of learned to be hugged. And so I, 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 I'm constantly trying, I've been trying to adapt around this. And by the way, I want to raise the question around, um, around sexual orientation, um, around if any of you are, are gay um, and how you experience this differently, or how as a straight person, you might experience a hug with a gay person differently. So like, for example, like 
I, I, in some ways, I feel like a deeper affection in hugging. Um, and I, we can psychologically unpack this, but, and I wonder your experience, hugging someone who's gay than someone who's straight in some ways, because it feels like there's all these intense norms around being straight. But if I hug like a, if, if, if I hug a woman who's lesbian, it feels very, something feels very different there or hugging a gay man. Um, and so I wonder uh, if that's a factor for you as well. Yeah, I have several gay men who are close to me and the hugs with them, there is no sexual under any. Yeah, right. So right. it's a very easy type of hug. Whereas if you hug a heterosexual, there's always implicit a sexual underlying motive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, great. Okay, other thoughts folks have on this or other related ideas or, un or unrelated? Just to say, I don't think it's necessarily a sexual motive. I mean, I have a lot of male friends who are just friends, have always been friends, have been friends for decades. They're not gay, they're straight. And um, there's never been a problem with a hug. I mean, it's, it's um, they even yeah. hugged me when I was married and, you know, with my husband there, there's nothing sexual at all. I think men and women can be just friends, but definitely with a gay person, it's really easy. So what about the opposite? In the workplace, going back to Cheryl's idea of power, how do women use touch for power? And is that ever a concern? I think I overused it. When I look back, I mean, there was one of my technicians was, he, he was a sweet guy who was a lot of fun and he was funny and had, had a really curly, curly hair. And I used to like do that to his hair. Now when I think of it, if I, and then that was in the 90s. I think uh -huh. if I did that now, I'd be called in and, and you know, uh -huh. shoot out yeah. for it. So it's probably inappropriate. I mean, I think now if I were to hug anyone, I'd ask their permission first. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. but I'm also a touchy feely person. So for me to just put my hand on yeah. someone's yeah. shoulder or right. say, you know, good work and good, good show. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I used to do that male or female. I'm retired now, so it's probably not an issue. Although when I was volunteering and before the time, I, I, you know, I stopped now because of the pandemic. But, you know, some of the guys would come in. I was friendly and they were my age. And, you know, they just, you know, pat my, hand, my shoulder uh, just to say hello. No yep. problem with it. But I wouldn't initiate right. with them. Right. Um, okay. Cheryl was going to jump in. or uh, Yeah. Cheryl, then Eileen. Yeah. Um, I, I would have to disagree about the idea that men and women can be friends. Uh, straight men and straight women, let's say, can be friends. Um, because there's always this look, you know, the, the, there's, there's something. I mean, I have a friend who shares quite a bit of um, the same uh, passions that I do for theater and things like that. And we used to go, just he and I would go to the theater, you know, with, you know, we, because we love to go to the theater, you know, we were just friends, you know, we're friends as couples, we're friends. 
but it just, you know, now it's not looked on as something that is uh, acceptable. Men and women can't be friends. You know, that's, that's the whole thing, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it all depends what, I, I think it all depends where you're coming from. They, maybe they can be friends, but you know, if it's, these are friends as couples and you separate the couples and go off somewhere and do your own thing, you know, it's, it's, it's very, yeah. it's difficult now. Everything has much more, there's many more rules now as right. we're learning. Interesting. Yeah, Eileen, thank um, you, when, when I was teaching, I found the use of touch to be very instrumental in controlling my class. And the troublemakers, which were teenage boys, I could usually control them by putting my hand on their shoulder. And if I walked around the room, checking on what they were doing and just put my hand on their shoulder, they stopped. They didn't move. They didn't say a word. So uh, from their perspective, it was fine. I understand today, if I were teaching, I could not do that. Yeah. So, you know, reflecting on, yes, Francine. Yes, Francine. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute still. AJ, can you help? Maybe unmute everyone. Oh, I taught second grade, and somewhere in the middle of my career, they announced that we were no longer allowed to touch the children. Then wow. the union would not protect us if we got sued. And I found wow. that very difficult because second graders, wow. as, as, well, all children, but this, yeah. the younger ones, sometimes came to school having had a very bad start to the day. Yeah. Yes. And in the, in, the, in the old days, you'd go over, you'd put hand on the shoulder you say joey you look so sad today yeah we know we could go over and say joey you look so sad today well you couldn't put your hand on the shoulder wow. and I, this is a quick anecdote one of my joeys came in one day and re he always looked sad but he looked even sadder and i said joey you look so sad today Did something happened to make you feel that way and it turned out that his mother's boyfriend had died of an overdose in their house oh. during that night. And I oh. thought, I don't care if I don't care if they sue me. This kid needs a hug. Yeah. And and so I, yeah. I broke the rules. But yeah. I, I understood the rules. I just didn't know why they couldn't be applied one by one on one right. rather than right. as a general rule. Yeah, this is the challenge with rules in general. Um, yeah. you know, so thank you, Francine. Wow. I what what how lucky those students were to have you as their teacher for so long. You know, my, my, my daughter is a second grader and in COVID I've, I've shared this before, but um, the teacher is wearing a mask and then a face shield and yeah. never leaves her desk. And there's a line drawn like 10 feet away from her desk. And you're not allowed to cross that line. It's almost like a, I, I, I would never say like a Darth Vader or something, but like there's this person up there. You never touch them. You never get close to them. They just stay at their desk and talk to you from a distance. You can't see their facial expressions. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think of her sitting there and that's the relationship with a teacher who's supposed to be, you know, at that age, affectionate and warm and mm -hmm. connecting. So it's very, very difficult. Um, so, uh, 
So you, so let me say something about contemporary Judaism and, and a trend around touch, because we might think of a certain uh, Jewish traditions as being very touch oriented. Think about like if you saw, I mean, maybe you'd see this in some parts of reform Judaism. You wouldn't see it in traditional Judaism. Um, uh, if you saw a circle of people holding hands praying, you would think they're Christians. Right. Jews don't usually pray in a circle holding hands and nothing wrong with it. Beautiful to hold hands in a circle and pray. Maybe some reform congregations will do that. Um, but you would, that's not normally how you think of traditional Jewish prayer. Um, and yet the power of touch in prayer. I often when I'm when I'm praying the Amidah with my kids, I hold their hand when, when we're doing when we're davening, we'll hold hands together. And I love that. But we wouldn't do that in shul. That's just not that's not the normal protocol um, in my experience. And so in contemporary Judaism for young Jews in particular, but there's kind of this new, new agey trend, very touchy Judaism. And I'll give you a few examples of what that looks like. And Nona knows about gardening. Um, gardening Judaism has this whole new reemergence of Judaism and its relationship to the earth. There's, there's this whole um, wilderness Torah, if you've heard of wilderness Torah, that emerges that Jews want to spend the holidays camping Right? They want to. They want to. They want to spend Pesach at a bonfire, Shavuot out in the woods. Right? There's a return to slaughter that Jews don't want to. Who keep kosher or don't keep kosher? They don't just want to buy the meat. They want to slaughter the animal. They want to touch the animal. They want to be in the experience of it. Right? Of the earth, of the animal. They want to be out in the woods. There's this whole new. It, it also emerges not only in American Judaism but in Israel of being, being one with the land in Israel. And so we don't think of this as traditional Judaism of kind of what we think of as sitting in the sanctuary, someone speaking up front and everyone else quiet. This is let's go outside, let's be with the earth, let's make fire, let's be in the water. It's a very touchy hands-on Judaism that, that doesn't look like, you know, as they say, your grandparents' Judaism. And I wonder how, how, what parts of that resonate for you and which parts might resonate less. Not the slaughtering, <laughs> but um, I, I know I noticed that some of the um, younger people want to do things. They want to. It's live. It's almost like a living Judaism. It's it's not just a it's not just a receiving. It's a you know it's a living Judaism. So some of the people that want to experience, you know, let's walk across the desert. Let's have a hike in the desert because it's Pesach because that's, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, still thinking, you know, t uh, touching, a touch with the story and the touch, uh, you know, a touch with the tradition, but just exercising it in a, in a yeah. different manner than sitting around a table and telling the story, yeah. doing it that so, way. You know, so, so Reb Zalman, who's, you know, really, you know, the founder of Renewal in many, in many ways and, and, pr and probably cross some sexual boundaries inappropriately, um, and uh, given its cultural context of the fifth of the sixties and seventies, nonetheless, was very much promoting this new age renewal Judaism, which is very, very touchy, very living, very hands-on. You never go to shul and just listen quietly for an hour or two. You're going to be very engaged physically and with other people dancing and touching and interacting. And, um, and, and I think many find it appealing and many don't, but yeah, so let's hear from some others here. My reform temple um, is probably more aligned to participatory Judaism. We do not just sit 
at a service. Yeah. There's activities, which I think is good. I think participating in living Judaism is very helpful for making the religion meaningful in our lives. Mm -hmm. Great, great. I know that resonates for many, most certainly young families who want to bring children, but not only them, uh, many who, yeah, who really want to participate um, in those kind of ways. Uh, I see uh, Reb Mark is writing on the side, Isabella Friedman Retreat Center. We have an annual Jewish men's retreat. 90 men spend Shabbat together, a lot of voluntary touch during Shabbat morning tefillah. Thank you, Rabbi Biller. Very interesting. Um, and, and how do folks feel about all gendered spaces? Um, do you access spirituality and touch more positively in all women's retreats or all women's gatherings? Or how about all men's retreats? Is, is that different for folks who are straight or, or, or gay? Like, how do, you, how do you experience all gendered spaces as liberating I, or confining? I prefer all women's spaces. It's been a long time, but I had at one time gone on um, a women's uh, Rosh Chodesh retreat for the Shabbat and, and all women made it more comfortable. To be honest, I mean, I grew up as a modern Orthodox Jew and if a man walks on our side of the Mechitza, I get pretty annoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really nice. like having the separation. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Um, Shmuley? Yeah. I, I think uh, just going back to the actual synagogue experience, yeah. how things post-COVID, whenever that may be, are, st are still going to be totally different. I mean, when this all first started right before the lockdown, you know, we, we were in shul, and, uh, but there was no touching of the Torah, which is a very significant part to people, you know, to touch the Torah as the Torah marches around and kiss the Torah and do all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, that's going to go by the wayside for now, once we actually are in person inside of our sanctuary again. So, I'm, I mean, at least for the, the near future, you know, I, I think yep. certain things and certain activities, you can call that an activity, you know, yep. uh, the touching activities might my, you know, what about just when, you know, when, when as uh, you have an Aliyah and you touch and kiss the Torah, yes, I mean, all right. of those things are going right. to be put, put aside for, for at least for now. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. You know, um, has anyone been to Catholic mass in the last decade? When I was a child and I went with my Catholic grandmother to Catholic mass, I think, I can't remember if the priest put the little bread wafer into my mouth or into my hand. I think I recall it being open your mouth. Yeah, they put it on your tongue. It on your tongue, right. Uh, and uh, are they still gonna do that? Are they gonna wear gloves or, you know, I mean, how does that work? Or at shul, you know, sometimes you cut a challah and all the kids come up, you give them a, uh, you know, in some shuls, the kid even drinks from the same kiddush cup. I mean, most shuls now have those little plastic cups, right? And you pour a little 30 of them, but you cut a little challah, you start passing them out. I mean, how do we, how do we go back to that distribution of challah and, and kids, this is going to be complicated or do we ever go back to that? Um, you know, and you're right. Touching the Torah, kissing the Torah. Um, yeah. It's very, these are very big uh, questions. Uh, Rabbi Shmili. Yes. Hi, Eric. 
Hi. Um, so I, I've been finding this very fascinating of the notion of a live, uh, uh, a live Judaism, but uh, the notion about going back to the handing of the challah, I'd say if we really need to go safe route, let's just go the Sephardic route and you just throw the challah and <laughs> <laughs> touching all together. But um, that being said, um, I find the interpretation of a live Judaism to be fascinating because I've, I've learned just, you know, I, I see myself kind of as a, a jack of all trades or a, kind of like a, a chameleon. I've been able to dabble and blend into a lot of different forms of Judaism. And I've seen through different denominations of organizations and temples is that they have their own interpretation of what of how to do what it, we see as a live Judaism. And it is generation-based, uh, different by generation, but it's also by different denominations because I've done the men's retreats. I've done the, uh, the you know, the the gender equaling of the uh, mingling of the retreats and also different denominations. I find it very fascinating. There's different interpretations how it's done. And I think that that is going to continue in this generation and the next generation, but it's going to continue to evolve in this case. Yeah. You know, so just to flesh out what Eric said at first, um, as you might not be uh, aware, the, the general Ashkenazic minhag custom was um, it's disrespectful to throw challah. You place it on a board, you pass the plate around, whatever the case is. But, but the Sephardic custom specifically, and, and you're shocked the first time you encounter it, is they literally throw the challah at you. You know, throw it at the, t you know, throw it. It's like, it almost feels like, in, you know, uh, disrespectful or intense, but that, but that when, then you get used to it. And so, and yeah, so Eric's point that maybe we should adopt the Sephardic custom of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of throwing. So, uh, but yeah, your point around these, this denominationalism and beyond of interpret, you know, interpretations, this to me is one of the top 10 most powerful dimensions of, uh, of Jewish life our ability to interpret and reinterpret and reinvent um, and, um, uh, and have so many different models and access. I really feel bad in countries where people have access to one type of Judaism. You know, it's like there's one option more or less and you take it or leave it. Um, or there's one of two extremes and nothing in the middle. You know, and so we're we're so fortunate to have different different types, and even within denominations, it, you know, looking at Phoenix, if you're Reform, you're going to get a very different feel of going to Temple Chai or Temple Solel or Beth Israel, Orthodox. You're gonna if you're going to go to Beth Beth Beit Tefillah versus Ahavas Torah versus uh, one of the Kolel. I mean, these are going to be totally different experiences, and uh, even within the denominations. And, um, uh, and, and then how amazing it is to end trans, enter transdenominational experiences. One of the things I loved about Hillel, uh, back in my Hillel days, um, and we probably all had this experience, was you're in your reform minion or your conservative minion or your orthodox minion, and you hear the other ones in the room next door, you know, doing it very differently. And I, I've always thought that was such a beautiful model for what Jewish life could be to having one building where you could enter different spaces. Or in Omaha, they have the, the monotheistic prayer center where there's a mosque and a synagogue and a, um, and a uh, church um, in the same building, you know, and then they come together for Kiddush, right? They come together for uh, a, little, uh, a little food experience, a little snack experience after their prayer services, which is kind of cool. So, um, okay, friends, we're going to have to pause here. I wish everyone a great day, not only a great day, but a very smooth day, a day of memachik, 
where we embrace the wonderful smoothness. We can all be smooth operators and uh, embrace the, 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 sensor, the, sensor, the sensory experience of touch to enlighten our intellectual and emotional capacities. Have a great day. See you soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy to be fun, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. Bye.